From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the show on this Monday morning. Good to be with you. And we've got a cracker show lined up for you later on. We're going to be talking to Rob Hutchinson, reporting from Parliament about what's going on in the South African Parliament. But before that, I'm very excited to say that we have on the line with us Ephraim Zurov, who is the chief Nazi hunter at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And he also works in the Israel office, as well as working on Eastern European affairs for the organization and a man with immense knowledge and understanding of the Holocaust and where we are today with it. Uh, Ephraim, I was very happy to interview you. What You were in South Africa about uh, eight years ago, I think, must be an hour. Seven, seven years ago. Seven years ago, and we had a great interview, and you were just uh, now back in South Africa, so it's great to have you back on the show. Thank you very much. Always happy to come to South Africa. If I'm just maybe to set the scene for people who weren't listening to our show seven years ago, maybe give us a sense about when you say that you're a Nazi hunter, what that means, and B, why is it that we should see hunting Nazis now in 2022? Okay, when people ask me what's my job, I say that I'm one-third detective, one-third historian. That's my real profession. I have a PhD in the history of the Holocaust and one-third political lobbyist. Now, what do I mean by that? I try and find individuals who either in the forces of the Third Reich or allied with the Third Reich were active participants in the persecution and murder of innocent civilians. Now, why is that important? It's important because most countries are not looking for them anymore. And uh, they're still out there. Some of them are still alive and can be brought to justice. And I'm trying to maximize justice as long as it's still possible. Now, if you're wondering why it's still possible today, there's, there's two reasons. One is because the, of the extension of life expectancy. In other words, people are living much longer today and most of the perpetrators of Holocaust crimes are living in countries like Germany and Austria, where the health system and the services are quite good. And that helps, you know, uh, people to live longer. Uh, the second reason is a very dramatic change in German prosecution policy. Until about 12 years ago, in order to prosecute a Nazi war criminal in Germany, you had to prove that that person had committed a specific crime against a specific victim and it had been motivated by racial hatred. That's almost impossible to prove these days. But um, because of a, an initiative launched by two wonderful, uh, I, I call them righteous Gentiles, who worked as lawyers in the central office for the clarification of Nazi war crimes in Germany, Germany changed its policy. And now they are willing to put any person who served in a death camp, that means a concentration camp, with apparatus for mass murder, gas chambers or gas vans, or any camp with a high mortality rate towards the end of the war, they're willing to put them on trial uh, uh, based on service alone. All we have to prove is that they served in, in this camp. And been, there are uh, two trials going on right now of the secretary of the Stutthof concentration camp, 
Nigdansk in Poland, and another of an SS guard in Sachsenhausen, that's a camp in Germany. And there have been um, four convictions already in the other five cases, only one of which was stopped for medical reasons. And uh, these, these trials are very important because they're a very timely reminder of the crimes of the Holocaust in camps that in Germany might be known, but outside Germany are not well known. And there's been fantastic media coverage. Uh, I mean, I've attended the several sessions of these, of, these, of these trials, been interviewed many, many times, and I'm not the only person being interviewed. The lawyers are interviewed. The, um, in, in German law now, there's something very interesting that if you lost a first degree relative in the camp where the defendant served during the time that the defendant served there, you can join the prosecution. You can make a statement in the courthouse, in the trial. And it's an amazing, it gives the families an amazing sense of closure that they're able to stand up in a German court and point an accusing figure, a finger, excuse me, at the person who was in the camp at the time that their relative was murdered. So listen, people need reminders. These people might be old, but old age should never afford protection for people who committed such terrible crimes. The passage of time in no way diminishes the guilt of the killers. We owe it to the victims and their families. That's a point that Simon Wiesenthal himself, our mentor, uh, very, very strongly emphasized. It's a good reminder in the fight in other words, it's helpful in the fight against Holocaust distortion, Holocaust denial. It sends a message that if you commit such crimes, even decades later, you might be brought to justice. And uh, these are the last people on earth who deserve any sympathy because they had no sympathy for their victims, some of whom were even older than they are today. And I would just add that what we have to remember, keep in mind, is that these people are not being brought to, to, to justice, being prosecuted because they didn't help an old lady cross the street. Okay, these people were involved in very serious crimes. And when they committed those crimes, they were at the height of their physical strength. Young people full of energy and strength, which they devoted to the mass murder of innocent men, women, and children. The lesson is very important. Uh, one of the things that uh, emerged, for one uh, result of these, of these trials was a fantastic verdict that a, a female judge named Anne, uh, Anne Maya Goring gave in a case of a guard uh, from Stuttoff who served in a watchtower, and she tore to pieces all the arguments against the trials, that so much time has passed, that the defendants are elderly, that they weren't, uh, they weren't the key operatives. She, she clearly showed how there's no such thing as a small cog. Every small cog, in quotation marks, was a participant, Every participant helped make it happen. That's why the scope of the Holocaust was so huge. And we can't forget that. So I'm, I'm a firm supporter, obviously. And uh, I'm, I'm extremely happy that these two lawyers, and I want to name them because they deserve to be named, Thomas Walter and Kirsten Getzer, who worked in the central office for the clarification of Nazi war crimes, were able to convince their bosses that these people can be prosecuted successfully not for murder, for accessory to murder. I'm interested in what drew you to this work. I mean, you've grown up in a time of immense challenge for the Jewish people, whether it's the issue of Israel, uh, the issue of the, 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 the Soviet Jewry, 
this has been a, a very big time for, for activism of, of this kind for, for Jews, particularly in the United States. What drew you to the idea of Nazi hunting over the many other challenges that the Jewish people have? Well, let me tell you something that might you might find amusing. Many times after I give a lecture about my life as a Nazi hunter, successes, failures, and insights, people come up to me and say, oh boy, you have my dream job. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a Nazi hunter. I wanted to catch those people, torture them, tear them apart piece by piece, limb by limb, etc. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but my fantasy growing up in Brooklyn, New York, was to be the first Orthodox Jew to play in the NBA. <laughs> Not to be a Nazi hunter. Basketball's loss is Nazi hunter's game. But uh, the truth of the matter was, I was always very interested in history. The point that you made is a very good point. I grew up in a time of very um, important activism on behalf of the Jewish people, on behalf of Israel, on behalf of endangered Jews, the Soviet Jewry. I was very involved already from high school in demonstrations against the Soviet mission to the, to the UN, for example, because the embassy was in Washington, we lived in New York. And uh, what's interesting was that Adam Frazinger, who's a historian at the Bar-Ilan University, Professor Adam Frazinger, wrote a um, academic article showing how many of the leaders of American Jewry actually got their start in the Soviet Jewry movement. And I'm one of those people. In other words, uh, I got my start there. I was also involved for Israel and for other you know, Jewish causes. And um, in a sense, we lived under a shadow of the failure of the Jews of the diaspora who were outside of the area of the Holocaust to be able to do more to save their fellow breth their brethren under the Nazi occupation. And this is one of the, was a primary motivation of Jews in the United States especially, said we can't fail Soviet Jewry the way that we more or less failed. I mean, not for lack of intentions and not for lack of sympathy, but just for lack of understanding and lack of activism. And the fact that in those days, the Jews had nothing like the political influence in the, in the United States uh, that they have today. So just as an example, in those days, there wasn't a single Jewish senator and only seven members of the House of Representatives. Whereas today, there's something like 10 Jewish senators out of 100 and uh, over 30 members of the House of, 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 Co of Congress, House of Representatives. So we can't you know, write history in the eyes of today, we have to remember what the situation was in those days. Talking today to Chief Nazi Hunter from the Simon Wiesenthal Center, Ephraim Zeroff. I'm Benji Schulman on 101.9 High FM. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Schulman. 101.9 Chai FM, I'm Benji Shulman. Nice to be with you on this Monday morning. Talking today to Ephraim Zuroff, Chief Nazi Hunter at the Simon Wiesenthal Center, talking to him about his life and current work. And Ephraim, I want to ask you a more contemporary question. Without getting into the politics of the issue at the moment, which is, of course, very fraught because it's very hot at the moment, but the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and the reasons that uh, Russia is giving for that invasion, uh, namely the denazification of Ukraine and all of this. How an effect do you think this is having on distorting the Holocaust and affecting the work that people like you do in, in bringing in bringing Nazis to justice? There's no question that these accusations that are being hurled by the Ukrainians at the Russians and by the Russians at the Ukrainians include gross distortions in the history of the Holocaust. First of all, as you remarked, Putin said in the beginning in, in, uh, in February that 
he's launching an operation to denazify Ukraine, okay, as if Ukraine is a Nazi country. That is pure bull, you'll excuse me, okay? But having said that, there are certain elements uh, in, in the Ukraine that are problematic vis-a-vis the Holocaust. So uh, let's go to the other side. When, when President Zelensky spoke to address the Knesset last week, and he said, well, we helped you during the Holocaust, and therefore we deserve your help. I mean, that is the biggest crack of you know what, because if you compare the number of Ukrainians who helped Jews and saved Jews and God bless them all and we honor them and we admire them and we help them, there's no comparison between the number of Ukrainians who helped Jews and the number of Ukrainians who helped murder Jews. And we're talking about the people in of Bandera, who's a national hero in Ukraine, who's the head of the OUN, we're talking about the UPA, the army of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists who in 43 and 44 murdered thousands of Jews and tens of thousands of Poles. Not to mention Khamelnytsky, who was one of the biggest Ukrainian heroes and the pogroms of 1648 and 1649, which Zelensky, of course, did not mention. 200,000 Jews were murdered and 100,000 Jews were murdered in the wake of World War I. And Petluru, and when Ukrainian mobs uh, headed by uh, Simon Petlura and the, the state that they initially set up with very short-lived Ukrainian uh, national independent state led to the death of 100,000 Jews. So, I mean, listen, we can't forget all of that. And, and Zelensky, if he thinks that he's going to get away with saying, oh, we helped you during the Shoah, so help us, that's, a, that, that's basically giving us a kick in the groin and giving us impetus not to help him. But uh, listen, there's no question that the Russians here are the ones who are committing the war crimes, and they are um, sowing destruction and, uh, and death in their wake, and uh, it's a real tragedy. And uh, we hope, listen, we're hoping for peace, but uh, at the moment, it doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, uh, imminent. Let's stay in Eastern Europe for a little while and talk about a country that uh, I'm sure that you deal with a lot, but has a particular residence here in South Africa, uh, which is Lithuania. And uh, a book that uh, came out just before Corona hit uh, on on a big scale that really starts to delve into the the Lithuanian role in the Holocaust, which maybe hadn't been so explored before, uh, which I think obviously with South African Jewry being so close to as descendants of, of, of Lithuanian Jewry, uh, I think is of, of great relevance uh, and has a fascinating reaction in Lithuania. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Okay, so already many, many years ago, I realized that the issue of the narrative of the Holocaust was going to be a very serious issue in Lithuania. And I'll tell you just a short story. You know that during the Soviet times, the uh, Soviets, refused to to admit that Jews had been singled out to be murdered in the Holocaust. So when they made monuments at places of mass murder, and there, and there were many places of mass murder in the Soviet Union, and also especially in the Baltic countries, in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia. So the caption that they used to write on the, on the monuments was to the victims of fascism. Oh, that's a really interesting caption. What does it hide? It hides the identity of the killers and, and the, it hides the identity of the victims. But, so in other words, these countries who did not become liberal democracies after the end of World War II, 
They simply replaced a Nazi invasion, a Nazi occupation with a Soviet occupation, the second Soviet occupation. So in other words, the first time that they had an opportunity to learn the truth, teach the truth, write the truth, was when they, when the Soviet Union crumbled in 1990 and they became independent. So in 1991, a brand new, quite impressive monument was dedicated in Ponar. Ponar was a forest outside Vilna, 12 kilometers from Vilna, where 70,000 Jews were murdered, mostly from Vilna, but not only from Vilna. So at the dedication, and the dedication had a plaque which said that the Jews, the Jews identified the Jews as the victims. They were murdered by the Nazis and their helpers. They didn't write local helpers. God forbid someone should think that they were involved. In any event, the, the keynote speaker was Gerominus Vagnorius, who was the prime minister of uh, Lithuania. And he said the following. He said that the misdeeds of a few misfits, social outcasts, can't ruin the, the reputation of a country where so much was done to help the Jews. Oh, that's very interesting. So much was done to help the Jews. And how do you explain that of the 220,000 Jews who lived under the Nazi occupation in Lithuania, only 8,000 survived. And if you add the fact that there were less than 1,000 Germans in Lithuania during the Nazi occupation, and that the murder process was not done in gas chambers, it was done personally. Every single Jew, 90% of the Jews murdered in Lithuania were murdered by shooting near their homes. And that's incredibly labor intensive. So who pulled all this off? Who, was, who perpetrated all these crimes? The Einsatzgruppen that were the ones who were involved in these crimes by the Germans, so, and was spread out from Estonia in the north to Odessa in the south, numbered only a few thousand people. And they murdered a million and a half Jews in two years. So how's that possible? It's very simple in Lithuania, where you had willing, zealous collaborators, more than 20,000 of them. The minute I heard this speech, I said, Opa, we are in for trouble. This is going to be a very, very uphill battle to get these people to prosecute the Lithuanians who haven't been prosecuted or haven't been punished. And that was indeed the case. And um, this fact, you see, you have to remember, only in Eastern Europe did collaboration with the Nazis include participation in systematic mass murder. In Holland, in Belgium, in France, everywhere the Nazis were successful in enlisting local help, but that help ended at the train station or at the, at the port. And those Jews were sent somewhere else to be murdered by someone else. Who went to somewhere else is the death camps in Poland and the, the Einsatzgruppe. And that somewhere else is, of course, Eastern Europe. And so there's this enormous almost dissonance that you find amongst Eastern Europeans that they were the victims twice of the Nazis and then of the Soviets, and, and they were the victims and they didn't do, do anything to the Jews. Uh, so when you wrote this book, you actually had to go out there and dig it up. So what was that process like? Okay, so I uh, met, in other words, uh, I was approached by a very popular Lithuanian female author, non-Jewish, by the name of Ruta Vanagai. Uh, she was one of Lithuania's leading authors, uh, leading writers, and she discovered several years ago that her relatives, her grandfather and her aunt's husband, were active participants in the crimes against the Jews. And she wanted to atone for it. And now this, I have to say, is unusual, very unusual that a Lithuanian, particularly a prominent writer, will want to atone for, for first of all, admit that a family was involved. And second of all, try and do something about it. 
So she started a project called Being a Jew. She brought hundreds of uh, non-Jewish Lithuanian high school kids, junior high and high school kids to the synagogue in Vilna to let them hear lectures about Jewish history, Jewish traditions, Jewish holidays, etc. cetera. They, they made a beautiful ceremony on Yom HaShoah in front of the Vilna City Hall. And then they took them to Ponar where they learned about the process and the horrible crimes that were committed there by the Nazis and their Lithuanian helpers. First of all, the fact that she admitted to me that her family was involved, no Lithuanian. I'd been coming to Lithuania dozens of times. I met many, many Lithuanians. Not a single one ever admitted that. I was really floored, I have to be honest. And we started, we started talking about what, what can we do together? How can we do something to try and educate Lithuanian public about the truth about the Holocaust? Because in Lithuania, they never told the truth. They talked a lot about the Holocaust, but what's the Holocaust in Lithuania? Oi vavoi, the Nazis came to our country and murdered our Jews, never. What a tragedy. And if you sort of press them, ah, a few misfits, illiterates, bunch of no good for nothings. That's not us. That's not the Lithuanian society, God forbid. Okay? Anyway, so we decided to go on a mission. In Lithuania, there are 234 mass Holocaust graves. And we decided to go to them to see if they're marked, to see if we could find them, um, and to interview eyewitnesses, all non-Jews, because there's no Jews left in this small shtetlach. The only Jews left are in the cities now, and there's only 4,500 of them in general. So we started out, we set out, and the places that we chose were parts of our biographies. In other words, Ruta, of course, grew up in Lithuania. She's an ethnic Lithuanian. Um, her, grand, her father grew up in a different place. Her mother grew up in a different place. And we went to the places where she grew up, places connected to her relatives. My, I'm actually named for my grandfather's brother, who was the only one with his family in our family who was murdered in the Shoah. I was actually supposed to have a different name. And when my father contacted my grandfather who was in Europe helping the displaced persons, he suggested that I be named Ephraim. My parents had already chosen a different name. In those days, kids listened to their parents about naming their children. Today, it would never happen, but that's another story. In any event, so I'm named for Rabbi Ephraim Zohar, who was murdered with his wife, not with his wife, separately from his wife, Bela, and his two boys, Hershon Eliyahu. In any event, so I went to the places that connected to my family, to Ligmian, where the six brothers of my grandfather and his five brothers were born, to Ponovich, where my uncle Ephraim studied Torah, and other places in Shvetsyan, that's where the people from Ligmian or the people from Ligmian area and other places were murdered. And we chose those places and we added places. We ended up going to 40 places, 35 in Lithuania, five in Belarus, because a Lithuanian unit was sent on October 6, 1941 to Belarus to murder Belarusian Jews. And they murdered 20,000 in, in less than two years. Okay, so any person who we met who lived during World War II, we interviewed. They're all non-Jews. What question do we ask them? Who committed the murder? Invariably, in every single place in Lithuania, they all said, oh, the Lithuanians committed the murder. <laughs> And then the question was, what's the motivation of the murder? And that we had very intense conversations. And we, Ruta and I argued here and there, and we fought about certain issues. She couldn't believe 
I used to read her accounts of horrible tortures that the Lithuanians tortured the Jews before they murdered them. And she said, I can't believe it. She couldn't believe it. But I mean, these are legitimate testimonies and, and there wasn't one and there wasn't two. And eventually I think she began to understand that this was something that there was a very important dimension of cruelty with this. And then we started talking about what are the motivations? Why did they join the killers? Why did they participate? And also the whole question of the role of anti-Semitism. Was it anti-Semitism? And Lithuania was not known as one of the most anti-Semitic countries in Europe before World War II. Those were Hungary, Romania, and, and uh, Poland. In other words, before the rise of the Nazis in Germany. So it was, it was baffling in a certain sense. What about the whole business of alienation between, between the peoples? The Jews were more affluent a little bit, a little bit. They were, many of them were poor, but, um, and they were more educated. So I'll tell you one little story about that. I read a lot of accounts that Jewish, uh, Jewish shopkeepers or artisans used to let the Lithuanian farmers buy on credit. So I said to Ruta, you know, this comes up in many testimonies. Look at this, good, this is good relations. They're giving the, the farmers who might have financial problems a chance to buy, to get the goods that they need. What, is, what does Ruta tell me? He says, no, you got it all wrong. Why do the Jews have the money? This is our country. In 1918, we became independent. This is Lithuania for Lithuanians. How come the Jews have the money and we have to borrow from them? Let them borrow from us. So th this is one example. But, but the stories that we heard was so heartbreaking. I have to tell you one story that I'll never forget as long as I live. We were in a town called Svencionelli or Novo Svencian right not far from where my grandfather was born. I see an elderly lady leaving a convenience store, like a grocery store. I say to Ruta, I don't, I don't speak Lithuanian. So I say to Ruta, no Ruta, get a, get a hold of her, ask her if she remembers anything. Okay, so sure enough, she was an eight-year-old, 1941, when the murders took place. She told the following story, that she had a Jewish friend and the Jewish family had two girls, one older than her friend, and her friend, and they also, she was also from a family of two girls, and they were friendly. And when the trouble started, the decree started against the Jews, there was, a, there was a very serious discussion held in her home whether they can save her Jewish friend. So I said to her, well, you, you must have been afraid of the Germans. She goes, no, 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 no. We could have hidden her from the Germans forever. That was not the problem. We were afraid of our neighbors. And she started crying, gut in Himmel. I'm telling you, it was so touching. It was like the first time she ever told the story to someone who empathized with her, with her plight, with her sorrow, with her longing for her friend. Now, Ephraim, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. It's, uh, and we haven't even got to the, the part of the reaction in Lithuania, which has been Im Im immense on this book. And they've tried to ban it. And uh, and, and this poor woman paid an enormous price uh, as an author for, for having written this book. So, but unfortunately, if you want that, you're going to have to, to read it. So, so where can people get a hold of it and, uh, and, and, and see the work that you do? Okay, so they can, uh, they can buy it on Amazon or on Barnes & Noble or, or these uh, book sites you know, that uh, sell books from the States. And, um, or, I mean, if people are in Israel, they can buy it from us um, or, or other bookstores. But um, the point is that the book created an enormous scandal. The head of national security in Lithuania 
went on national television and said that the book endangers Lithuania's national security. Now, what was he trying to say? He says, now Putin will invade us because we're a Nazi country. And Zurif and Vanagaita proved it. So I was laughing when, when, when I heard that, I, I cracked up. I thought this was absolutely hilarious, okay? And the American embassy in, in Vilnius called the government and told them the guy should get a life. You know, he should calm down and, and uh, understand that Putin's not about to invade them. But that's, I need the story is that a couple of years later, what we see in Ukraine is that's exactly what happened to Ukraine. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's not funny, but as you say, very ironic. Ephraim, an absolute pleasure as usual. A, a half an hour of our show has sped by and uh, we barely scratched the surface, but a real pleasure talking to you. And, and I hope uh, that you'll come speak to us once again. Listen, Benji, first of all, I want to tell you something. Uh, when I when you interviewed me in 2015, when after Rabbi Goldstein invited me to Sinai and Daba, I remember I went to your, to your studio over there and I have to say, it was one of the best interviews that I've been interviewed, really. And believe me, I've been interviewed quite a few times, as you can imagine. So I'm very happy to come back and be interviewed by you again. And I'll always be happy to be interviewed on Radio Chai. So all you have to do is set up a Zoom or a Skype or whatever, and I'll be happy to give you an interview. Amazing. Uh, well, we really appreciate that. I also want to say hi to all my relatives there. And to Ilana's relatives, it was great seeing them, meeting them, and uh, we should stay in touch. For people who are not aware, Ephraim has a, a South African link, and more importantly, a South African wife. So uh, a, a lot of a, a lot of connections to our community. Ephraim Zurov, thank you so much for joining us. Go check out his book, Our People Discovering Lithuanians' Hidden Holocaust. Uh, absolutely spellbinding story and, and quite amazing. And uh, hopefully we have you back on again. Thank you so much, Ephraim. Hopefully. So all the best, everybody. 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman.